everybody seems to be raving about Italy. It's become the hottest destination for European travel for good reason, and that means it's more important than ever to sort through the superlatives to put together just the right itinerary, offering maximum cultural thrills while minimizing those exasperating crowds. Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and coming up in the hour ahead, we'll talk with a friend who lives and teaches in one of my favorite towns in Tuscany, Cortona. Giovanni Adriani will give us an insider's peek at his delightful hilltown hometown. But thousands of Americans will never see Italy because they're afraid to fly. So we'll talk with a pilot who runs a fear of flying clinic to learn just what it takes to overcome the white knuckles and nightmares that keep so many would-be globetrotters grounded. Now raise your travel dreams to their upright and locked positions because we're heading fearlessly to Italy. Coming up in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. We get together each week to talk about the exciting and impressive destinations that make our world such a fascinating place to explore. But while many of us lay awake at night dreaming of our next exotic travel adventure, many others struggle with a fear that keeps them from boarding an airplane. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're talking with a pilot who runs a fear of flying clinic to see just how he helps people overcome their anxiety about air travel. That's coming up later this hour. But first, we're traveling back to what for many of us is our favorite European destination, Bella Italia. For me, it is Europe's richest, tastiest, most rewarding, and most challenging culture. And it's the sun-soaked hilltowns of Tuscany that offer what to many is the quintessential Italian experience. As so many of our travel dreams are taking us under the Tuscan sun, we're visiting Cortona, the birthplace of that popular trend among American travelers. First, we have a couple callers on the line who'd like to talk about their travels in Italy. Call us at 877-333-RICK or email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Steve in St. Louis, thanks for your call. What are you thinking about? Well, I uh, wanted to give your listeners uh, just an idea on something you've said in the past. I was recently in the Cinque Terre, and I was there this last uh, November and you've always, you know, discussed in your in your book how crowded it is there, and that uh, you shouldn't go in the busy times of the summer. Right. And I just wanted to let them know that, uh, you know, on the first week of November, the weather was great. There was no crowds. You didn't have to fight your way along the trails, and uh, it was just a neat experience. This is the first week in November. Yes, and I'm sure. The last couple of weeks of October are similar, but the you know the first week of November, the weather uh, unless we just got lucky, the weather was uh, in the seventies during the day and in the uh, you know high fifties in the evening. And you know walking along there, uh, we still worked up a bit of a sweat and uh, and really enjoyed it and didn't have to dodge uh, traffic coming the other direction. Yeah. And some of those trails are so narrow that uh, you don't want to have to walk around too many people out there. Depends on the people. Yes. <laughs> Um, you know, were the, were the were your accommodations heated at night? We stayed in a uh, uh, person that we met at the train station that uh, wow. had offered us uh, a room, and uh, it was a little uh, apartment in the middle of Old Town Montrose. Now, there. this is interesting. We had no heat on, but it was it was comfortable. We had the windows open, as a matter of fact, to get some fresh air. So you, you and your partner? Uh, my wife. Your wife just stumbled into town, no reservations, and somebody mm-hmm. met you at the train station? Uh, yeah. Fell on a bicycle and said, "Are you looking for accommodations?" Wow, no, some In people perfect English. <laughs> some people would think that's a little bit um, dicey. You know, how did you know this person? Do you think they were accredited? Was it a you know all this kind of stuff? What would you tell people in that regard? I mean, he was uh, he was nicely dressed, had his bicycle, uh, spoke uh, fluent English, uh, told us what he what we like to look at his apartment that his uncle had uh, you know uh, left him. And we said, uh, sure. I mean, it's basically like any other instinct. If you're, if the person looks like you wouldn't trust them, then I wouldn't. But uh, this guy just had, mm-hmm. you know, that look and and talked well and uh, was real friendly. And he, you know, offered to show us the place. We walked yeah. oh, about, you know, a quarter of a mile to yeah. the place. Looked at it. He said, uh, I'll come back in two days. And uh, here's wow. the key, and we'll get the money at the end. And it, it, uh, it was just a great experience. And it was that there. easy. Yes. That, the value in those places is incredible. I would imagine you spent probably $50 a night for the double. In 
dollars. It was about sixty dollars. Yeah, but it was a real nice. It had two bedrooms, even yeah. though we didn't need them, and a kitchen. Yeah, and, uh, kitchenette you know, and, the, and the works. Yeah, right. The whole that, works. You know, all over Europe. If you're sort of a, a more aggressive traveler to be able to do this, but you know, in some ways, the more you get things figured out, the the more magic you take out of your travel experience. If you have the nerve to stop into a place without a reservation, meet somebody at the train station, see how you you click with them, let them take you to their place, you save money, you meet friends. Uh, you never know what kind of serendipity will will come out of that. So that's a good lesson for traveling just about anywhere. We stopped in Luca, and we also stopped up in Lake Como and found uh, hotel rooms that you had suggested in the book. And uh, that's a, that's an easy way to go too. So. Oh yeah. Well, it's a balance. But when you're going in the off season, the beauty is you don't need reservations generally. I think if people are thinking about this, remember peak season. It is packed, uh, and uh, the American travelers are spreading things out a lot. In the last decade or so, I've noticed it's less of a bell-shaped curve, and it's more of a flat curve about when people are traveling. More people are stretching the travel season into the early spring and the late fall. You went to about the end of what I would call the travel season, late October, early November, and in January... These people, everything closes down. You can't get a good restaurant meal because any good restaurant, I figured, was worked hard for eight or nine months, and they're just um, off somewhere just having a good time, and why are they going to work in the winter? So the only restaurants that were open in the winter were pretty bad. Um, it's it's just deathly quiet in the heart of winter. But if you can do the uh, you know early spring, late fall, you're getting good weather on the Riviera, and uh, you're going to get all that magic without all the intensity of the crowds. Enjoyed uh, the, the lack of crowds, too. All right. Hey, thanks for your call, Steve. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, bye now. Bye. And we have Jessica on the line in Lake Oswego in Oregon. Hi, Jessica. Hi, Dare. What's up? Well, I just, I have sort of a more of a less practical question and more sort of philosophical question. Okay. I'll put <laughs> so on my sorry, philosophical but, hat. Um, my husband and I went to Italy in 2001, and we visited the Cinque Terre, oui. um, partially uh, because it was recommended in your books. And it was in July, which to me would have been peak season. And it was crowded, but it wasn't what I would have considered overrun. Mm -hmm. My husband and my mother and I went there in September of 04, and and September, I thought, would have been a little bit slower, but it just felt clogged. I mean, it felt like there were just so many people. And I guess... My my question was, is there a point at which you stop saying a place is your favorite place? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I was just watching your Spain program uh, down here on Oregon Public Broadcasting the other night, and I, it struck me that and you were, or no, it was Portugal, I guess. You were talking about Salema, right. I think. <laughs> and you said, again, it's your favorite place. It's this tiny little fishing village. And I thought, well, but isn't that going to become the same right. clogged place if everybody says it's their favorite place? So how do you, I mean... I guess it's not really damage, but the damage is done if you're thinking about the Cinque Terre ever being a, a quiet little fishing village again. Yeah, that's a difficult issue. In a lot of ways, I'm kind of like the whaler who screams, quick, harpoon it before it's extinct. Mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm. And I've got these beautiful places that are endangered, and I'm out there hunting them for my readers. Mm-hmm. And um, in a way, I'm, I kind of say, well, I'm the hired hand of my readers, and uh, I, I, I'm the lead man. I find these places, and I send them home to my readers, and, and they all go over there and trample on the charm, which is sort of a sad irony. Mm-hmm. I go back about almost every year to these places. Every time I come to Salema, the town you mentioned, my beautiful, favorite little village, the mm-hmm. fishing village on the south coast of Portugal. I'm nervous. I go down that little uh, humble road and I wonder how many new condos are there and are the people going to be all uh, moved out and all the um, you know tourists moved in. And It's amazing to me the resilience of these little places. Mm-hmm. Now, I've gone to places where I do reassess it and I just say, you know, it's gone overboard and I really? cannot recommend this anymore. Mm-hmm. And then I, I find an alternative. One thing I need to do in my work is I'm interested in a lot of people using the material that I generate, so Mm -hmm. it needs to be accessible. And everybody who uses my material knows how the the magic of the Cinque Terre and the Italian coastline. Hey, that's just an hour away from the Leaning Tower of Pisa. I mean, everybody, it's it's an easy day trip from Florence. Mm -hmm. Anybody can get to the Cinque Terre. It's accessible and it's remote, you know, as far as uh, modern travel goes, transportation. You can't get tour buses into it. You have to um, know cars in some of these towns and so on. But it's going to have crowds. There are going to be towns that are, you know, on the south coast of Italy that might be just as magic as the Cinque Terre, but in practice, Americans won't get there because they're just too far away from anything else they want to do. You know, I have a question. You went there in July. What was the first year you went when it wasn't so crowded? 2001. So you're wondering if in just three years, because you noticed a big change in September, 2004, it's much more crowded. 
I think it might have been the day you were there because the Cinque Terre is um, packed with American tourists these days compared to how it used to be, but it's not packed to the point where it's trampled all the charm. But it's very close to Genoa, a huge uh, metropolis, millions of people, literally, and they go on vacation on the weekends oh. and they head out to the Cinque Terre. If you happen to be there on a Saturday or a Sunday, it is, it's got double the load because you hit it on a bad day and all the, the big city people are side-tripping out there for their beach break. That might have been it. I don't remember that what day could. it was. But I also know we bumped into, in September, we bumped into a couple of uh, people. Apparently there was a Rick Steves tour in right. Vernazza that day right. as well. Um, and we heard we overheard a few of the tour guides talking in the, in the Blue Marlin and stuff. So it was yeah. It was just a surprise to me. Well, it might have been um, the perfect in that storm. Short amount of time. Well, you hit it one when my groups are there too. I mean, that's that's bad news. <laughs> we used no, to have, we had a place to stay. We were fine. <laughs> we we used to have an article on our website called "Drafting Behind Our Tours," and oh. you could move into a town the day we left. Oh. <laughs> and that makes a lot of sense, I think, because you know you take you got a group of twenty five. We're the only group in town because the hotels are so uh, humble that most groups wouldn't be satisfied, and right. and you can't get a tour bus there, so you got to park the bus and take the train in, and so on. But boy, you get there, and I think it's worth the trouble, don't you? Definitely, and I and I think I mean you were talking about the resilience of these places. The other piece of it is you don't want to at this point pull all the tourists because I'm sure the locals are loving the income. Oh, you, you know, know from the places from the from the rooms to rent or the little yeah. shops along the main road. So you can't, you really can't unring the bell. Yeah, but it's, you know it's progress. I, I, I mean, I don't know what the right answer is, but I go there every year, and I'm, I'm awkward about it because I discovered this place when it was so pristine and, right. and empty of tourists, and everybody was so humble and making their wine and and working the fields mm-hmm. and all these bent old ladies in black, you know, cleaning sardines. And now I come back, and there's cyber cafes, and there's fancy restaurants, right. and there's rich locals with their cell phones, and 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 there's hordes of happy tourists. And, and I come in there and I talk to the locals and, and they're so excited to see me, they're stuttering. And then I meet all the tourists and they just love the little tip I gave them. Mm-hmm. So I think, well, the tourists are there in droves and they're happy. The local people are, are very right. rich. I mean, I was there in January and the place is empty. Everybody's in the Caribbean or something on vacation. They just close down in the winter and spend their money. So they're, they're doing great. And then I meet a few disgruntled uh, travelers who look at me and say, why did you have to popularize this place? Why didn't you just let me know about it so it could be my place, you know? Well, that's my point. These are accessible. These are the right. front line of tourism. And uh, if you want the real pristine, undiscovered places, you can find them, but you're going to have to go uh, to more remote corners. Well, and you're certainly not going to find it in a guidebook. I mean, if it's a guidebook, If it's in a guidebook, it's discovered, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, I mean, that's that's sort of the the argument that I have in my head is, you know, I'm not arrogant or ignorant enough to think that I'm going to be the only tourist in any of these places. No. And yet, of course, that's what every tourist wants. It's um, That's what the tourists want, and they've got to be realistic about it. Right. They can get it, but then they're not going to have the information in the guidebook. They're not going to have the cyber cafe. They're exactly. not going to have the comfortable B&Bs. You know, exactly. They're not going to have the uh, uh, menus that are tourist-friendly and so on. And, I mean, you could say that's for better travelers, but there's a nice compromise to go there. And I, I think one good thing about a place like uh, the little backdoors that I promote is that a different breed of traveler actually goes there, and they tread a little more lightly on the cultural soil. Mm-hmm. I and, agree. And they're people that you enjoy hanging out with a little right. bit, and, and they fit with the culture a little better. I think they're not so likely to be ugly American-type travelers. I do agree. Jessica, thank you so much for your call. Thank you. And I hope you have some continued good travels. I will. (laughs) Thanks. Bye now. Bye-bye. We're heading for the Italian hills for an insider's guide to Cortona in Tuscany. Next, as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves, and right now we're traveling to Tuscany, specifically Cortona. And, you know, I just got back from a lot of travels, and one of the joys for me is to connect with great local guides. And I've been all over Europe, and, you know, I am spend every other day with a local guide, and half of the guides I team up with are mm, okay, but half of the guides I team up with really are worth remembering, keeping track of, recommending in my guidebooks, and... Um, connecting with our radio show. And I've got the opportunity right now to talk with a wonderful guide who gave me a beautiful day in Cortona. We've got Giovanni Adriani on the line. Giovanni, thanks for joining us. Yes, thanks a lot. Um, too many compliments, I think. But anyhow, I remember that day too. It was a beautiful day, even if we were running uphill and downhill. We were doing a lot of running because you were doing a lot of teaching. Well, because it's crowded and intense. You know, it's, my place is little, little inside the walls, but has so many meanings, so many artworks, yes. so many memories, and an interesting real life, so it's crowded. It's got to be into a brain of an Italian, you know? It's fast. That's right, and our it's challenge, crowded. together, our challenge is to uh, distill the so much information so the uh, American travelers can better understand your city or wherever they're going. I think they can understand, they can enjoy a little, you know? In Cortona, we had foreigners from the 1700s living in the town, in the countryside, so they can see things, they can enjoy a little, and they can participate. It's not just crossing the square. I think it's nice. It's interesting for us and for the others. It's a great formula. That's a very interesting point you just made. You said since the 17 or 1800s, foreigners have been enjoying Cortona. And, the, of course, for Americans right now, the big trendy thing is uh, Francis May's Under the Tuscan Sun, like Peter Mayles, A Year in Tuscany and A Year in Provence. All of these Americans are reading these popular novels. They're being inspired to go to these towns. And in so many cases, I find that these towns that are featured in these popular novels are just trampled with tourists. I was worried when I went to Cortona thinking, boy, it's going to be miserable with all the tourist crowds there. But in spite of the tourist crowds, the town was wonderfully enjoyable. And you explained to me that Cortona, it's nothing new to have a romantic tourist coming to Cortona to enjoy the wonders of that town. And Cortona um, lives on its traditional yeah. ways. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's in, in our life, and we were laughing about uh, Francis Mays buying the house in the back of the hill, and then became uh, another fun thing. But, you know, we have uh, students from U.S. from 35 years in Cortona in the summertime, so it's just another funny thing. And they feel this, too, I mean, Francis Mays and the husband. And when they are in the square, people are laughing, I mean, not for being mean, but just because it's, the city is growing. It's little, 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 but uh, kind of having fun with everybody. I don't know. I hope it's a challenge. I hope it will be the same in the future, or maybe even better, you know. We are waiting for new results. Yeah. Let's see. We are doing a lot. We are working. We are inventing things, and still it's interesting. It's there. You know, it's old. My family is old, too, there. I mean, I'm there from the 1300s. I don't know. Something magical. Since the 1300s, your family? As much as I have the books, I checked, and I found my house of the family, and they never moved from the same house, you know. Until my grandfather lost everything gambling, by the way. He was playing cards and was a tragedy. But, I mean, the family's there, you know, from the Middle Ages. Yes. And I felt like you told me when we were walking the streets of Cortona, there's a lot of characters. You know, your grandfather lost everything gambling. But you could point out different characters who had families famous for this or that over the last generations. And that's what makes, that's what carbonates the whole experience when you come to a little hill town like Cortona, is the people and the characters that are going about their ways, just making it through another century. Yeah, it's true, you're right. And you know, the last one about a family with a past is they're running a restaurant and having fun. It's not death, you know. I think this mix of Middle Ages and Renaissance inside the ring of the Etruscan walls made a strong sense of the community. And everybody's coming inside from far away. It's not a ghost town or no, romantic. It's per you can't enjoy the view. You have to live in the square, you know. It's fun. And, you know, Giovanni, I went to many towns in Tuscany because it's so trendy with Americans now. And some of the towns, are, be okay. some of the towns are beautiful, but they're like shells. Uh, San Gimignano is beautiful, but completely sold out to tourism. But Cortona and Volterra, those are my two favorite towns because they still were vibrant and, and local cultures in spite of the tourism. And I think that's what attracted Frances Mays. And I think she's just one in a long line of uh, romantic travelers that appreciated uh, the beauties of your hill town. Yeah, but I mean, we have romantic views too. We have the woods, you know, we can have in the fall the mushrooms. And, but then, if you live here for a while, you know how a man is interesting when he can expand the, the brain into the architecture, relate to people. You know, when you cross the street in Dallas, it's far from a point to the other point. Here, there is always a meaning. You turn the corner, there is another meaning. You turn the corner, there is another person with another meaning. And some of these people are really old, and some they are really new. And the new ones are making fun, you know? It's, 
It's what it is. I mean, and my wife, she's from Dallas, and now she's a Cortonese, really, because she knows the places. She's living here and increasing the pleasure of the city. Um, well, that's interesting. I don't know. What I... do you want more about uh, a human being living in a place like this? I mean, it's more interesting. So your wife traded Dallas for Cortona. <laughs> yes, from a huge emptiness to a little strange, funny little thing on top of the hill, crowding old. But it's getting interesting. And when she has guests, relatives, she's not a tour guide. She's like the one living here. And it's another feeling. Something's growing with Cortona. She's not just a guest. Like Francis Mays now is a part of the town. We have a new yeah. subject to talk about. So Francis Mays is a respected part of the community, and, and uh, she's brought a lot of business to the town, but she's just another person in the town, and she lives outside the walls. And you told me a funny story about her house under the Tuscan sun. Okay. Well, that's real. I mean, she lives in a little place in the back of the hill, and the name of the place is Bramasole. And the ones that read the book, I think they remember the name, but Bramasole means craving for sunlight. I remember being little. Nobody wanted that house. You know, she has the shade at 3 o'clock in the afternoon in the winter. And so we said, oh, you know, we sold the house. Oh, to who? To a foreigner. Which one? The one wrong in the back of the hill. So she bought kind of a joke in a cheap house. But then we worked on the house. The house is beautiful now, and we are going there, and we are laughing about that. So from a little cheap thing became part of the town and funny again, you know. And I think she enjoys this. Even the fact that she started in this funny corner, you know. So begging for sun, craving for sun, that's the local nickname of the Under the Tuscan Shade. Under the Tuscan Shade, yeah, actually. Under the Tuscan Shade, that's great. Hey, Giovanni, we were talking on the main square. Uh, There was three Uh flags, the three flags flying from the city hall. There was the, uh, what, the, uh, well, there's, what flags were they again? (laughs) Okay, you want to hear what the ambassador said? Yeah. Okay, one, they had a tour with the U.S. ambassador, and we saw the three flags. Okay, one is European community, and the other one is Italy. And the third one, it's a flag that Italy invented at the beginning of the war in Iraq for peace. And by the way, it's peace written in Italian, P-A-C-E, and it's all over Europe now, but it's a rainbow flag. So the ambassador was in Cortona in the beginning of the war with the mayor, the group, me, everybody, and so he said, but Giovanni, why is the gay flag on the town hall? And we didn't want talk about the war, so we said, it's the mayor, and the mayor was there, preferring to be homosexual than say, oh, you know, it's against the war, so really, every time we look at the flag, we think about that. It is interesting, when, it, when an American goes to Italy, all over Europe, actually, you find the peace flags flying everywhere, the rainbow flag, and uh, pace, it says in Italy, of course, because that's the... It's uh, an Italian idea, you know why? Because we have a march for peace from Ears to Assisi, from Perugia to Assisi, and it's about San Francis. And this flag was invented in this peace contest and in the occasion of the war in Iraq. Now, should an American individual traveling through Italy feel bad when they look at that peace flag? Is it an attack against Americans? No. Europeans, they love to blah, 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 anyhow, because the U.S. is on top of the world. They don't like to talk about disparate countries all over, far away. But uh, it's, I mean, when you see people in person, when people are nice, are nice. When are not, are not. Actually, the country is a little comfortable. So a nice person has to be comfortable. You know, we are in our town. If you like, good. If you don't, well, you can go. But like anybody else, you know, if you're nice, you're welcome. But you're welcome in our house, in our restaurant. I mean, it's an honest feeling. So honest people are welcome. I think U.S. people, they are easily able to make a good contact with people, and so it's always fine. So in other words, uh, Italians won't judge individual Americans by their feeling about American foreign policy. They'll judge yeah, people as individuals. I think it's right, you know. Oh, well, of course, we have arguing about everything, but, you know, with everybody. And by the way, Italians, I don't love to argue. And by the way, we are not mean when we argue. It's just another way to feel alive, you know. We want to discuss. If not, it's boring. I you know? love that. If I respect You're not... you too much and you respect me too much, what can we do? Sleep? I mean, <laughs> that's beautiful. So let's you've, you've, you've summed up so much about the Italian character there. It's not mean when we argue. We're alive. Yeah, I mean, it's just competition made Italy famous. And if we are not that great now every day, it's because we don't make funny competitions anymore, you know. 
this mixture, I think it makes Cortona really a nice, interesting little town and not like anybody else. And, and excuse me, my English is getting worse. Oh, your English is great. I'm talking with Giovanni Adriani, a friend of mine who's a great local tour guide in Cortona in Tuscany. Giovanni, you took me into a church, and I was just amazed at this. You said, the priest is really cool. It's okay to do this. And we walked up to an altar, and we lifted up the the tablecloth on the altar. You showed me an inlaid piece of marble cut into the table, the marble table on that altar, under the cloth, and it was kind of rustic. And you said, under that little piece of marble is a relic. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you can't have an altar in the Catholic Church, in a church in Italy, if you don't have a relic of a saint, a piece of a bone or ashes or a piece of a dress too. But the point was for showing you how honestly and in a real way we are connected to our saints, to the dead. Or that's why we cut the saints in pieces, you know. We just need the pieces for many altars. But it's really there, you know. It's like under St. Peter in the Vatican, you have the little grave with the bones of St. Peter. Giovanni, if I go to any church anywhere in Italy and I go to a chapel on the side of the church, an obscure little chapel, there's got to be a piece of relic on that chapel to yes, be consecrated. Yes, it has to be. But you have to be smart enough to understand the feeling. If you go in a church that you have to pay for getting into, when they check on you, when they check your dress, then it's even hard to move the tablecloth for the, from the altar, you know. But okay. in Cortona, you saw the church. And the priest is nice in the sense you can turn on the light, you can walk inside, you can talk, and you can move the cotton and see if under you have the space for the relics or not. That's a peaceful and comfortable sensation and really honest, really rare. Now, we were talking, Giovanni, about how your cathedral in Cortona is not as rich and, and luxurious as a cathedral should be because the local people have a different uh, loyalty to a different saint. <laughs> oh, yeah. There was a really nice lady, Margarita, that is the name of a flower. I think in English is a daisy. And she lived in the 1200s. And from that time, she made such a nice feeling with the city, helping everybody, that from that time, we adore the body. She's on top of the hill with the sanctuary. And that's our heart. We have a cathedral, but, you know, nobody cares. Huh. And we have a same patron as any other city in Italy, Who's St. Pa- Mark the Evangelist. And nobody cares for St. Mark, too, you know. So St. Mark. Santa Margarita is on top. Saint, Saint, Santa Margarita just sort of aced out, just defeated uh, St. Mark in the hearts of the local people, and the local Cortona people basically ignore their cathedral, and all of their religious love goes to the top of the hill to Margarita's uh, Basilica? Yes, and even now, when we have the little festival, you can see the entire valley going uphill, and if you're a believer, if you're just a Cortonese, if you love art, you feel attracted on top of the hill because it's like a temple, because she was just good, and because everybody's loving her. It's a Alive feeling. Even in this part, Cortona is bringing something alive. It's not just a memory. Any city has the Duomo or the cathedral. But we have our saint from our city, our feeling from the 1200s, still alive. We sing songs from the 1200s that are our songs from the time of St. Francis. It's a pleasure. You have no idea. Wow. To sing your past, 800 years old, it's a pleasure. Your town has your saint and this, the heart of the people. 800 years later, they still relate to Santa Margarita. Yes. One great thing that impressed me with Giovanni is the importance of having a local art historian to take you into the museums and help you appreciate the art. Now, one of the, the, the most famous local boy there is Luca Signorelli. Signorelli is, uh, was before Michelangelo a little bit, and uh, Giovanni was explaining to me how Michelangelo was inspired by Signorelli. Can you explain that a little bit to us uh, again, Giovanni? Especially the frescoes he painted in the cathedral in Orvieto near here, or coming back in Cortona at the end of his life, they are really powerful. The language is an intense, abstract language. And you can see like uh, floors that are without weeds, empty, like into the brain. And these people with these colors and these muscles, they have a, a strong impact. And Michelangelo was translating that into those beautiful, big bodies, swollen muscles. It's all tension. I think it's what in the 1900s made Picasso and the abstractions. But they were so alone and powerful. And they were born near to each other, and they were kind of 20 years apart. And uh, 
Signorelli was like the masculine, strong painter when he was a young teenager. I mean, Michelangelo. Okay, so... And you can tell. Giovanni, so we got Signorelli, and if people haven't seen his work, it's the muscles just shine on the bodies. They're not as as heroic as Michelangelo, but there's a definite celebration of the human body. Signorelli from Cortona was 20 years before Michelangelo. You took, me, about that. Yep. You took me to the fresco of the Morning of the Dead Christ, and we were talking about how ideas come like hammers through this painting. You can see the composition is inside the brain. You have this abstract floor, and on top you have a group of people, like a, a separate idea with the body of Christ, like another fragment inside. And then you get the backward with, on the left, a crucifixion, on the right, a resurrection. If you read the painting, it means uh, this is before, this is after. And then you have a lake in the middle, that's the baptism, in the back of the blood of Jesus. And the, bl- the blood of Jesus is there once it's done, and the blood is the sacrifice, is on top of the lake, because the lake is the baptism. From the death, through the blood, through the baptism, you go under resurrection. It's like... Uh, it's like uh, reading a brain of a person. It's not just nice colors of shades. It's so clear, mechanic, and powerful. And Michelangelo loved this when he was little. So when we look at Signorelli, we can see the clear power of the ideas that inspired Michelangelo. Yeah. Or you can enjoy the colored muscles that inspired uh, Sal Buscema and Jack Kirby in the 70s to paint, uh, you yeah. know, uh, Captain America, the Fantastic Four, the X-Men. I mean, the Marvel comics, believe me, they are just a copy of this because it's clear, strong, and fun. I'm sure it's for this. All right. If you don't trust me, you can check the comics. We'll check it out. Now, another thing very interesting to me, Giovanni, is the Super Tuscan wine. I'm a big fan of Brunello di Montalcino, and most of the tourists that come to Italy want to check out Brunello. But the new uh, wine on the scene for me is Super Tuscan. Can you explain to me what is Super Tuscan wine? Well, you know, I mean, it's just uh, another way to call high quality, but the, the word of the wine is a jungle. I mean, don't be confused. Just go in the place and try the wine because it's really high, high quality for a little price. So it's, even Brunello is good, but even about the Brunello, you know, you have like uh, 60 farmers working on the Brunello. Then you got the Nobile with other 70 people. I mean, it's like, a, it's a big, big messy. And yes, Super Tuscan, it's another kind of wine. But you know, if you go in San Gimignano, even there, the wine is good. Fernaccia is mm-hmm. a great, beautiful, white wine. In Cortona, we have beautiful wines now. I mean, and you drink in the right place, you know, with the frame. It's like, uh, how can I tell you? It's like if you ask me, oh, do you have a new kind of people? No, people are all over it, any kind. I mean, the different kinds. Is, uh, come here and <laughs> find your little bubble because we have hundreds of good wines. We've been talking with Giovanni Adriani one hour from Florence in the beautiful town of Cortona. Giovanni, thanks for your insight into your beautiful hill town, Cortona. Oh, thanks to you. And buon lavoro. Oh, buon lavoro even for you, by the way. You're <laughs> bigger than mine. <laughs> Ciao, Giovanni. Oh, the country's bigger. Va bene. Arrivederci, allora. <laughs> Entire years go by without a single fatality in America's commercial airline industry. Still, thousands of people dream of foreign travel but are afraid to step into an airplane. If you're nervous about flying, a little information on air travel and air safety may help. Coming up, we'll get some sound advice from a man who flies jets for Alaska Airlines. Steve Hutchison knows exactly how and why air travel is the safest way to get from A to B. He runs a fear of flying clinic in Bellevue, Washington and Steve will fill us in on how he helps people overcome this unfortunate phobia. It's coming right up, and don't mind the turbulence, on Travel with Rick Steves. Io sono Lisa Anderson e abito in Nord Italia, in Piemonte, e io viaggio con Rick Steves. That's Italian for my name is Lisa Anderson, and I live in northern Italy in the region of Piemonte, Piedmont, and I travel with Rick Steves. Io sono Lisa Anderson, di Nord Italia, io abito in Piemonte e io viaggio con Rick Steves. Grazie. Grazie a te. Hi, I'm Rick Steves and this is Travel with Rick Steves. Are you, or is someone you know, kind of wary about getting on board an airplane? A couple of stiff drinks doesn't really help to overcome a fear of flying, so what does it take? What I've got is an active pilot from Alaska Airlines who directs a clinic called the Fear of Flying Clinic. And his name is Steve Hutchison. 
and he's here to talk to us about the fear of flying. Steve, thanks for joining us. You're welcome, Rick. Yeah, nice to have you here. Tell me, what is exactly the fear of flying? It's a a combination of several different phobias. It can be fear of heights. For a lot of us, it's fear of falling that we develop very early in our childhood. For other people, it uh, can be involved with claustrophobia or the fear of reaching their destination. Perhaps it's a destination they don't really want to get to, such as a an emotional event, perhaps a memorial service for a friend, or uh, sort of a this is kind of a psychological uh, challenge people have. You can't just write it off and say, "Well, get in there and deal with it." I mean, people really are terrorized by this. Some people put off flying for years because they can't uh, commit to making a change in their behavior. Are there still people that that you encounter that haven't flown because they're afraid to get in an airplane? Yeah, in our last class, we had a man who hadn't flown for 23 years, and. Uh, We got him going again, which is very, very satisfying for us. I bet. How prevalent is this? How many people are afraid enough to fly not to get on an airplane? Boeing did a study. They said about 11% of their um, population uh, estimate, which would be over 25 million Americans, are anxious about flying. And some people fly anyway with white knuckles or a couple of drinks, which doesn't help. But uh, other people avoid it completely and just quit flying. Wow. And there are clinics, like the one that you run, that actually effectively deal with this. Right. We've had uh, some sponsored by the airlines. Ours is a nonprofit organization, and we've been in business for 28 years, and and about 1,500 people have been through our classes. Do you get some people that take your class and they're still afraid to fly? Very much so. Yeah, I, I wish I could give them a golden key and fix everything, but like anything else, it's a process, and uh, the more they fly, the easier it becomes. Right. So we get them started. How do you get started? What's the incremental steps? What would be a halfway there kind of? Well, for some people, it's information. They need the information from our volunteers, the pilots, the flight attendants, the mechanics, air traffic controllers. For other, it's the group experience, finding out they're not the only one that's afraid to fly. We have a psychologist that helps us uh, mm-hmm. work with our self-talk. Are people afraid of, speci- like, um, turbulence, clouds, rain? Do you, do you survey them and find out what's the deal? You bet. We uh, we address the clinic to their individual questions, okay. especially. I'm afraid of clouds. I don't get it. How how? It's just I'm petrified to fly through clouds. Help me. Sure. The the uh, fear of being uh, unable to visually acquire your surroundings. So you're inside a cloud. It's like a very thick fog. Uh, the pilot knows where he's going. He's guided by his instruments. But for you and me back in the cabin, we really don't have any outside reference to relate to. And so we start feeling anxious that uh, maybe somebody's not in control. So there is the issue of control for a lot of our uh, clients in the fear of flying clinic as well. What about fear of congestion of the airways? I mean, there's so many planes up there. It's just a matter of time before two of them are going to, like, crack up. It's a possible uh, thing that could happen. We have new equipment on airliners which uh, prevent us from uh, having collisions. Has there ever been a a collision midair of commercial airlines? That was why the air traffic control system came about, was two commercial airliners collided over the Grand Canyon back in the 50s. In the and, 50s, uh, wow. So the air traffic control system became uh, nationwide to prevent that from happening. When was the last time two airplanes collided in midair, uh, resulting in fatalities? Well, in Alaska, uh, this uh, past summer, a helicopter and a small aircraft came together and, and uh, collided. And that would have been an uh, um, oversight on the part of one of those pilots? That's correct. In uh, visual weather, uh, it's see and avoid concept. Anytime you're in the clouds, though, we are separated by either altitude or distance by air traffic control. They keep us apart. You're a pilot, and you can rely on you You trust your life to this. You can be flying through a cloud knowing that 2,000 feet above you, there might be another plane. Yeah, that's that's, uh, part of the way the system's built. And and we base our class on uh, the reliability of the system and the backups that are built into the system that that help us become more comfortable. Convincing people, in other words, that there are safeguards, that even if a guy is sloppy, that doesn't mean the plane's going to be not checked because it can't get out of the airport without being properly maintained and checked. That's really correct. Because I look out there and I see some of these guys and I go, I don't know if I want him in charge of checking the, uh, you know, the pressure on the sure. wheels or something like that. Uh, you know, get me uh, at ease in this in this respect. Sure. We have uh, uh, not only a mechanic that looks over the aircraft, but each flight, a pilot walks around the aircraft, looks for things like leaking oil and flat tires, things like that, parts missing. 
Then we have inspectors who actually look over the uh, work that the mechanic does and has to individually and independently sign off on any maintenance done. And, of course, all that is prescribed by the maintenance manuals, which are guaranteed or federally mandated. It's not just something we can invent every day. Now, I deal with my fear of flying. I don't really, I'm not terrified of flying because I just, I I deal with it sort of mentally, logically. I I deal with it with statistics. And I also think about it as a boat. A boat goes on water, and I can't walk on water, but a boat will steer in water, and it can go left or right or ahead or backwards. Now, an airplane is in something that's thinner than water, and there's one more dimension that can go up and down also. But it's the same sort of physics, it seems like. It very much is. It's a fluid, just like water. The air supports the aircraft wing, and the aircraft sits on the wing. The unfortunate part, though, is that the air is invisible, so it doesn't give us that psychological support like the water does for a boat. The boat bounces. Okay, so there's that psychological thing. I can see the water, I can splash in the water. You bet. But I can't see and splash in the air. That's correct. It's just not there. Although I can stick my hand out the window when I'm going 60 miles an hour down the freeway, and I can feel that that air has got some sort of substance. Mm -hmm. And, And we do that as kids. We realize how aerodynamics works. But when we sit in a jetliner going 500 miles per hour, we forget about those small lessons we learned back when we were kids. And the other thing I do to deal with my uh, nervousness about flying is, again, I use the statistics. Do you in your clinic use statistics just to try to convince people, debate people, that logically it's got to be safe? Uh, look, at there's been you know this incredible safety record. We really do, Rick, but statistics uh, are an intellectual thing, and the fear of flying relates to more to our emotional well-being. So your customers, your patients, they cannot deal with it intellectually. It's an emotional thing that needs to be dealt with emotionally. That's really correct. They, wow. they commit to making a change in their life, and uh, they get on with it by getting in touch with their emotions. Well, here's a man just emailed us, uh, Eric in Missoula, Montana, and he says as part of his routine to stay calm on a plane, he asked the attendant if he can speak briefly with the pilots before takeoff. They oblige on most uh, domestic flights, and um, will they do that on international flights, he wonders. Uh, also, are there restrictions on taking uh, prescription medicines on board? What about that? Can you uh, talk to the pilot and kind of just kind of get eye contact with them and, and uh, <laughs> lay your concerns that way? You bet. That's one way we can transfer our trust. We recommend that people, as much as possible, get in touch with the flight crew before the flight. Is that right? So if I'm really afraid and I've got to get down to, to California for some sort of a family get-together and I've never been on a plane, there's a chance I can actually meet the pilot. <laughs> you, you bet. He's doing his checklist. He's doing his pre-flight getting ready. But we love to talk to our passengers. It gets us in touch with them as yeah. well as them in touch with us. Now, what else do you do to keep people help people relax on a flight? Apart from the clinic, let's just say somebody's getting on an airplane. Flight attendants, they're trained in this. they got nervous people. Uh, how can you let them help you? The first thing is to uh, advise the crew how you feel. Uh, each person has individual feelings. They relate different. Some people like to have an arm around their shoulder and be reassured. Other people don't want to be touched. Uh, so let the flight crew know exactly what you need. Do you need a seat by the window where you can make a nest and be isolated from everybody? Or do you need a seat on the aisle where you can get that feeling of spaciousness and not feel closed in? So there's a thoughtful respect that goes out to people who have this paranoia. Absolutely. And people should be comfortable assuming, sort of figuring that's one of the services the staff will offer them, whether it's um, at the check-in counter or on the plane. Let them know that you're scared to death for this flight. You're going to do it, but you're just going to freak out if you don't get some help, and they'll they'll take care of you. Ninety-nine percent of the time, you're going to be a very empathetic, very understanding person. Sometimes you'll get that busy person or distracted person. They're not quite ready to address your concerns, but you should always ask. If you don't get the answer you like, ask somebody else. Some common concerns. I'm, by the way, I'm talking with Steve Hutchison, who is the director of the Fear of Flying Clinic in, uh, in the Seattle area. And uh, while they offer clinics in the Seattle area, they also have resources around the United States. You can visit their website at fearofflyingclinic.com. Um, Steve, I'm, I'm sure you've heard all of the uh, uh, the things that are causing people to be afraid. Um, birds. What if a plane flies into a bird? Is that Does that happen, and, and uh, is that a danger? Well, if the bird uh, strikes the aircraft, they'll inspect the airplane after it lands. If the bird happens to go through the engine, it might do some minor damage to the engine, in which case the pilot can turn the engine off. He can shut it down and protect the rest of that very expensive engine. 
Sometimes the, the only indication we get is the smell of uh, fried chicken inside the airplane. And you're speaking as a, a pi- an right. active pilot from uh, on Alaskan Airlines. So right. you know that this this does happen. And, and sometimes happen. you go, wow, we just hit a bird. But yeah. it's not like, uh, you know, grab your air masks and put on your uh, parachute. No, no real immediate danger it's just, normally. just, boom, we hit a bird. Sometimes, like I say, you turn the engine off to protect it. All right. Why is everybody so paranoid about smoking in the toilets? Well, it sounds like the, they're going to throw you in the jail and throw away the key when you smoke in the toilet. Yeah, in the past, we've had a couple occasions where people actually did throw a cigarette in the trash bin and started a, a fire and loss of life on the aircraft after it landed. Uh, very tragic. And so to avoid that, we put smoke detectors uh, and uh, changed the law so that we are a non-smoker. And that was a, uh, there was a, a fatality then. It was after you landed. That's correct. Air Canada had the aircraft wow. landed. Nine persons uh, were overcome by smoke before they could get them off. I remember landing one time and the pilot said, now we start the most dangerous part of this flight, <laughs> getting it into the hangar or something. Well, like driving to the gate is not as dangerous as actually driving home from the airport. It's, yeah, uh, I guess statistically yeah. that would be true. Do you have any concerns or, or statistically is there any way to think that some airlines are, are like discount airlines would be uh, more dangerous than... Uh, the, the regular airlines or older planes uh, or, uh, you know, is there any, any sort of a way to kind of navigate yourself through the risks and, 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 and fly safer? Actually, uh, we have an overlying system of regulations so that any airline that operates in the United States has to have an approved certificate. As part of that certificate, they have to have flight crew training, standards of maintenance, uh, aircraft that are well-maintained, and at if they did not maintain those standards, they would no longer be able to operate under their certificate. As a pilot, Steve Hutchison, you're waiting to get out, and then you're all free, and you're ready to scream down that runway and hope to pull off the ground before the runway ends up so you don't drive into the parking lot or something. And then you got to bank over there, and you get into your flying pattern, and then you just kind of relax for a long time. And then you got to navigate yourself down to that runway without hitting other airplanes and then stop before you run out of uh, pavement. Of that whole process, for you... When are your nerves up? When are, your, um, when are you just really uh, tuned in? What is the most exciting for you? What, where do you really have to be engaged? Driving to the airport. I actually relax when I get to the airport. Come on. You're, you're barreling down the, 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 the runway. There's, there's not a bit of stress for you. You know that plane's going to get off the ground. 150 miles an hour. The freeway, I've got it all to myself when I'm in that airplane because the runway is clear. That's interesting. So... And then landing, there's no question that you're going to be able to stop that plane before the end of the runway? The, the landing is a challenge because you want to make it smooth for the passengers, but make it precise. And so there's always the balance between smoothness and putting it exactly on the center line and getting it stopped on the runway. I'll never forget landing in the old uh, airport in uh, Hong Kong, which is like a pier sticking out in the harbor, you know. Uh, I would imagine some airports are more uh, challenging than others. They are. We have some special airports, but we also have special crew training and aircraft equipment required for those airports, yes. Well, this is great. Now, when you go to this clinic, tell me briefly what your clinic is like. I suppose there's clinics all over the country. Um, How long does it take? What's the cost? Uh, Are you you reading books? Are you seeing videos? Are you actually going flying? What's the deal? It's uh, basically uh, two consecutive weekends for us. Uh, we have about 20 to 25 hours of classroom lecture work, questions and answers. Then we take an optional, quote-unquote, graduation flight at the end of the class to practice the skills that we learn during the class, and that includes relaxation techniques as well as uh, knowledge that we've gained during the class. Where do you fly? Usually to Spokane and back or Boise and back, one, a city close here in the northwest. Is it an Alaskan flight? Sure. All right, and you uh, go with them on the flight, and you can say if they're questioning, what was that noise? Why is it shaking? What's that, what's that smoke coming out there for? You bet. In fact, uh, some of our graduates uh, become the experts. And then I after, bet. Uh, and then they're on planes on their own going, relax, it's just, it's just smoke. It's no big deal. That's it's just right. dry ice it's up just there. It's condensation coming out of the air conditioning. Because <laughs> that right. freaks me out sometimes. Yes, I see that is. smoke, yeah. and that kind of bugs me. So uh, you got two, two consecutive weekends. Most people can get through it? Yes, we have a really good success rate. About 95% of the people start flying again immediately. Uh, what's it cost for the whole thing? It's $450. And uh, you said it's nonprofit. Uh, why would anybody do this for nonprofit? You know, it is so satisfying, Rick, to see these people walk into the class with such huge fears and then to see them get going again, to, to face that dragon and, and press on and start taking the vacations they really want to take. Boy, airplanes sure make the world our playground, and that's something we can all be thankful for and um, hope that people can overcome their fears of flying. Steve Hutchison from the Fear of Flying Clinic, thank you very much. 
Thank you, Rick, very and much. And happy travels. Well, same to you. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. Come fly with me, let's float down to Peru. In Lama Land, there's a one-man band, and he'll toot his flute for you. Come fly with me, let's take off in the blue. Travel is an important part of the lifelong learning process, and that's what we're about at Travel with Rick Steves. We're looking for your original haiku poems, sound effects, or a short essay on where you live. Look in the 15 Seconds of Fame section of our website at ricksteves.com. Thanks for traveling with us. Once I get you up there Where the air is rarefied We'll just glide starry-eyed Once I get you up there I'll be holding you so near You may hear angels cheer Cause we're together Weather-wise, it's such a lovely day You just say the words And we'll beat the birds down to Acapulco Bay It's perfect for a flying honeymoon, they say Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly Pack up, let's fly away Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com. That's where you can look up information on today's program and listen again to this and other editions of the program, including a link to podcast versions of Travel with Rick Steves. You can also submit your questions and comments for Rick from our website to be included on future editions of the show. And send us your submissions for our 15 Seconds of Fame department. Details are at ricksteves.com. The people who help bring you travel with Rick Steves include communication support from Robin Goddard, Sonia Grosset, and Rachel Unk, with technical support from John Weist. Our theme music is composed by Jerry Frank. I'm your producer, Tim Tatton. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.